Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 2, 11. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 223. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramathium, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zeph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. 
For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. On a cold, wet day in January 1961, Lieutenant Jack Ravel climbed out of a muddy hole in the ground holding a rough gray sphere the size of a volleyball against his chest. For the better part of a week, he and his crew had been digging in the swampy ground outside of Goldsboro, North Carolina. It had been raining and snowing, and the hole had grown to be larger than a football field. 
Jack was just 25 years old, but he was in charge. And when he and his men finally found what they were looking for, Jack was the one who got to climb up the ladder and bring it out. Almost immediately, Jack flew back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. He landed in the late afternoon and went to bed early. The next morning, he took a shower, sat down at a table in his apartment, and started to write a letter to his parents who hadn't heard from him for more than a week. And it was only then that the magnitude of what he'd done started to set in. His hands started to shake. Lieutenant Jack Ravel had just located and defused two nuclear bombs that accidentally fell out of a B-52 bomber over eastern North Carolina. That's how a recent obituary for uh, this man, I've recently found this obituary, that's how it begins. And the rest of the story is just as interesting and even more engaging. It tells how, over the course of a few days, this obscure man that I had never heard of, and I doubt most of you have ever heard of, from a place in California, went to an obscure city that in North Carolina and worked outside the spotlight, and essentially, in his work, helped save North Carolina, or at least the eastern part of North Carolina, from becoming an uninhabited wasteland. And this morning, as we begin a new sermon series in First Samuel, we're going to be going over the course of a few months through a book that chronicles the rise and fall of kings in Israel. We're going to see some of like the most memorable stories of all of the Old Testament, but like little-known Jack Ravel, this great big story that this book tells, it all starts with an obscure man from an obscure town going about what seems to be probably a pretty mundane life. But even here... In this little story, God sets in motion events that will forever change the landscape of Israel and that ultimately lead to the coming of the Messiah, King. Now, as we begin this study in the book of 1 Samuel, we should remember where we are kind of in the context of history, where we are in the story of what's happened in Israel's life. Uh, if you were in core training, I did not think about this being kind of the same thing that just happened there a little bit. So I'm sorry, but I'm just going to dive into this one little piece. First Samuel falls right on the heels of, in our Bibles, the book of Ruth. But if you think about the time period, it's the book of Judges. And, and if you remember the book of Judges, uh, I think Corey told us he'd been reading and just finished. It's a pretty depressing book in lots of ways. What you see happen in Judges over and over is like this sick cycle of Israel turning their back on the king, on, on the Yahweh, the Lord, the king of Israel. They turn their back on him and go after other gods. And then in response to that and in judgment for that, God sends foreign oppressors, Philistines, other neighbors to come and oppress the people of Israel. At that point, kind of the third step in this cycle, Israel says, you know what? It was much better. We knew we should have been following the Lord. It was better when we were under him. We should remain faithful. And they call upon the Lord. And God in his mercy then raises up a judge. Someone who would come and take the people of Israel back from their oppressors. And for a season, that goes really well. The judge, usually there's some, some quiet and rest. But then Israel forgets quickly and they turn their back on the Lord go back to foreign gods and the cycle just kind of repeats 
rinse, wash, repeat over and over throughout the book of Judges. And it all gets summed up in the very last, very depressing verse of the book of Judges. So if you're in First Samuel, you can just flip back a couple pages and see the, the last verse in the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it says everyone was kind of their own judge. They did their own thing. And that's really the sordid place where Judges leaves off and where the book of Samuel in our text this morning picks up. And now this, this morning, we're going to walk through this passage. Uh, it'll be slightly different than what we normally do. We normally kind of stop bit by bit and say what's happening here and what's happening here. We'll do some of that, but really this, this divides nicely into kind of two big sections. So we're going to spend time looking first at the drama, really this, the story that's told in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Hannah, in her words and her prayer, is going to pause and reflect on what just happened. And we're going to pause there with her and look at the doctrine of this text, what Hannah is saying is happening, what God is showing himself to be. And then we'll close briefly today talking about our own discipleship and our own praise, our doxology to the Lord. And my prayer this week, kind of as I've been studying and been thinking about this, is that we would, we would just find ourselves rejoicing. In the surprising ways that God works to bring about his king and his kingdom. So we're going to begin by looking at the drama of this chapter. If you want to keep your text open, I'm not going to reread the whole story. Thank you, Becca, for reading a long text. Thank you for standing longer than normal. I appreciate that. If I say a name differently than Becca says it, she's probably right. And you'll just have to forgive me. Okay, so we're going to look first here at the drama. And it starts with some family drama in chapter uh, verses 1 through 8 of chapter one. Specifically, the drama, really kind of the, the crux, the problem, starts there in verse two, where we read that Elkanah had two wives. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I want to give you kind of a, a Bible reading tool, something for your tool belt or kids, youth, if you're just kind of learning to read the Bible. But let me put this, put this away as you're reading the scripture. I hope this helps you especially in 1 Samuel and in other places. And here, the tool is this. Just because the Bible describes something does not mean that it approves of something. Okay, so if you go read a news article about embezzlement or a murder, we don't automatically think the person who is writing this is trying to glorify embezzlement or he's saying that it's a good thing or murder is fine. Okay, but sometimes when we get to the Bible and we read something like this and we're like, as we ask this question, good, bad, not sure. Here we just want to say the Bible is describing this. It's not saying that it's a good thing. Okay, so actually throughout the story of the Bible, when you see these kinds of stories where there's multiple wives, it never really turns out good. Okay, the, the story of the Bible is one that this is not a great beginning to this story, that he had two wives. And the drama goes deeper because not only does he have two wives, but the one wife, Peninnah, is fertile, and the other wife, Hannah, is not. And for Hannah, this is not, uh, these are very different times than you would say it is today. It is, it, it's, there are people today who maybe make the choice to not have children for lifestyle purposes or other reasons. That was not a choice you made in Israel. It was not something that you wanted. Not having children was not, was a, it was not a viable option. 
They, it was the children were really the means of securing the family line. They were the way of helping provide for parents when they were getting older. So this is not something that Hannah was like, I just don't want kids. And so for Hannah, as we read through this, we'll see that she has sorrow and disappointment, like internally that she feels. But not only is she kind of struggling with this sorrow, disappointment, anxiety, but externally the people around her, they would often look upon her as shameful, like something is wrong with her, like maybe she is even cursed by God because she is childless. Thankfully, like the good part of this is that Elkanah, her husband, is actually really loving. There were laws at this time in certain cultures where your wife, if she was barren, like you could divorce her and go elsewhere. But Elkanah does not do that. He gives her in verse five a double portion, which may be ill-advised favoritism, but at the very least it's showing that he cares for her, his concern for her. In verse eight, he tries to comfort her with Words, although he kind of turns out to be a little bit, I think of him a little bit like Job's friends. You know, it's like real good when you're kind, when you're there and sitting, and then he opens his mouth and you go, oh, maybe, maybe pull that one back. Okay. As one church member put it to me last weekend, guys sometimes say dumb things even though they mean well. Amen. But if Elkanah is a loving but bumbling kind of comforter, Panina, on the other hand, is an adversary. You can imagine the scene here. Peninnah has all of her children. She has the portion that is given to her by her husband. She's counting all of her kids. And then little Josephus comes up to her and says, Hey, Mom, why does, why does Hannah have a double portion or a special portion? What's, why is that? Oh, well, well, sweetie, it's because Hannah can't have babies, can't have good little blessings like you. So dad has to try to make her feel better. Year after year, the text says, the calendar turns and instead of looking forward to going to the temple, instead of looking forward to the sacrifice, Hannah must have felt a sense of dread. Another year where the Lord has not answered. Another year of hearing the taunts of Peninnah. She's mistreated by Peninnah. She's maybe misunderstood somewhat by Elkanah. But Hannah is a faithful follower of Yahweh, of the Lord. And so in her sorrow and distress, even in the time of judges, when others are running to other places, she doesn't run from the Lord, but runs to him. And so she goes to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. But even when she goes to the temple, she's met with drama. That's the scene two, the temple drama in verses 9 through 18. Verse 9, we meet Eli, a priest who we'll be talking about more next week uh, and in a few weeks as well. Hannah goes to the temple. She prays to the Lord of hosts. You see that verse 11? How she calls out and says, Lord of hosts. Uh, that, that little name is even sung in some of our songs when we say, Lord Sabaoth, his name, and and uh, a mighty fortress is our God. That that name is saying, you, God, have all power. You command myriads of angels. The angelic army stands at your command. And so Hannah knows, even in this, it's not that God is not powerful enough to answer her prayer. She knows in the midst of her circumstances, he has the power to grant her request. And so she makes a vow to the Lord. She says that 
if she would, if she was given a child, she will dedicate this child to the Lord all the days of his life and that no razor shall touch his head. It's part of what's called a Nazarite vow. Uh, kids, we've not, it's been a little minute since we've done this, but we'll do some Bible trivia very quickly. Raise your hand if you can remember another Old Testament character who was a Nazarite and who was not supposed to cut his hair. Chandler? Samson, that's right. If you're reading this story, if you want to go back and look at Judges chapter 13, there's actually a few echoes here in this story of what's happened there. Samson's mother was barren, and the angel of the Lord comes and says, you're going to have a child who's going to be a Nazarite, no razor will touch his head, and he's going to be a deliverer of Israel. So even as we kind of pick up 1 Samuel, there's maybe some resonance. The first readers of this text would be like, this is a story that's kind of ringing like something I've heard before. But in the midst of Hannah's faithful prayers, Eli, the priest, totally misinterprets what's going on. He sees her lips moving, but there's no words coming out of her mouth. And again, maybe, maybe it's because this is the time of the judges. Maybe it's he is more used to people being drunk in the temple than people coming to pray in the temple. And so he thinks that here's just another person kind of wandered in off the street talking to herself. And so in his apparent zeal for the temple grounds, he comes and he confronts Hannah. But Eli here is wrong because he misunderstands and misinterprets her actions. I I won't camp out long here. If you want to read ahead next week into the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2, remember this story. We'll probably come and examine just a little piece of this next week when we come back. But in verse 15, Hannah comes and sets the record straight. She's not been pouring wine into her body. She says instead, I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord in prayer. And Eli, when he recognizes this, he he gives Hannah a priestly blessing. And so Hannah goes home no longer sad. She takes this blessing as maybe just like the smallest beginnings of hope. Like maybe, maybe this time God will finally answer my prayer. And that's exactly what happens in scene three where the Lord remembers. Look at verses 19 and 20. This is, all of the story is just building up and climaxing here in verse 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. All of the buildup, all of the tension, it kind of crescendos and then resolves in that little phrase, the Lord remembered her. And to be clear, this is not like the Lord remembering as if he forgot. God knows all things. Her existence and even what she desired never escaped his notice. What it means here in remembering is that God sees that and considers her needs and he decides to act in kindness and compassion. It's like if someone mentioned to me in passing, so Laura, we go to a store and she says, that's a really nice looking thing. I'd like to get something like that one day. And then on her birthday, she unwraps this present and says, oh, you remembered. It's not just that I didn't, that I forgot it, it's that I knew that this was something she wanted and I decided to give her. I remembered her. And the Lord here remembers Hannah. We read in earlier in the story that the Lord 
It is the Lord and His sovereignty who had previously closed her womb. And now in His sovereign mercy, He gives Samuel the son who she has prayed for. And the drama at home here is resolved. Scene three resolves that first scene's drama. Her reproach is lifted. Her shame that she felt around Peninnah, it's taken away by the loving response of the Lord. But there is still the issue of her vow, the promise that she made to the Lord that she would give the boy to him all the days of her life, which brings us to this final scene of the drama where Hannah remains faithful. So in verses 21 through 23, Elkanah is going back to Shiloh, but Hannah says, I'm going to, with your blessing, I'm going to stay here until I've weaned the child Samuel. So she stays there and then she fulfills her vow in verses 24 through 28. She takes young Samuel, who's probably three or four years old, to the temple. She tells Eli that this is the little boy that I had prayed for, the one who I had vowed and that you said you blessed and prayed for as well. Then she gives Samuel to the Lord in service. And Samuel, we read, begins to worship the Lord there. And that's the story. That's the drama of the passage. All of the events kind of unpacking. Now, typically, I'm just going to tell you, typically throughout 1 Samuel, you're not going to find a lot of reflection on the stories that we read. The narrator doesn't just like jump in and say, here's the good people, here's the bad people, and here's the lesson that I want you, God's people, to learn. That doesn't happen frequently in 1 Samuel. The author just kind of tells the story and then leaves the reader, you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit today, to do the interpretive work of understanding and figuring out what to apply and what's true and right. But here, this story is a little unique at the beginning in that we get a spirit-inspired prayer from the lips of Hannah. So that that prayer that we read in chapter 2, that is Hannah's reflection on what God has done. And it is working to teach us doctrine, to teach us what is true about the Lord. And this this prayer is important. It's important for the story that we just read in chapter 1. But this little prayer at the beginning is more like a trailer of coming events for everything we're going to read in first and even into second Samuel. If you want another, so one more tool for kind of your Bible reading toolkit, as you're reading through the scripture, even on your own in your own time, or as we're working through books, pay attention to what happens at the very beginning. And then oftentimes at the very end of books, Oftentimes the Lord is using those and the writer is using those to highlight things that are important as we read through this whole book. And that's what's happening here. If you, uh, I'm not going to read all this because it's a little too long, but if you want to write this down, if you want to just spend some time meditating and seeing this this week, Second Samuel 22 and 23. Originally First and Second Samuel, they were one book, they're divided in our Bibles, probably just because they couldn't fit all of it on one scroll. Uh, so these are just one book of Samuel. But if you go back and want to look at 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, and then 2 Samuel 22 in the beginning of 23, you'll see a lot of ways that these overlap. God is using these kinds of things to show themes that are going to pop up throughout this whole book. And if you want to, you can go back and you could go make this your homework assignment. Throughout, throughout uh, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, you can make a list. There is worthy, beautiful, doctrinal truths just seeping out of every verse in this. But I, I want to spend our time kind of highlighting three points that I think are kind of the theological anchors. These are the ones that are going to crop up throughout 1 Samuel. 
and that she that Hannah is reflecting on of what is true of even her own story. So three theological anchors to hold on to, three doctrines that we see here. First, there is no rock like our God. There is no rock like our God. Just think of all of the places that Hannah could have run to when she was facing the disappointment of childlessness and barrenness. Think of the temptation when when she's being insulted by Peninnah to just kind of throw taunts back at her. Yeah, you've got kids. I've got the love of Elkanah. I've got a double portion. He likes me more than you. Or think about the, the other places she could have gone. She could have, along with a host of other Israelites, gone to Baal or Dagon or one of the other false gods around. Maybe, maybe Yahweh is just not powerful. Maybe he's stopped listening and I'm going to go turn to one of the gods, the other options around me. But that is not what Hannah does. There are other rocks, other places where she could turn to for protection, for comfort, for security. But Hannah turns to the Lord, to the one true and living God. Because according to verse 2 of chapter 2, there is none, none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And in this confession... Hannah is making two claims. One claim is that there is security and protection and help found in the Lord. And the second claim is that security and protection, it's found only. It's found only in the Lord. Imagine a scenario where a storm is coming, a tornado is coming to a town and people are running to find safety. One, they, they run past, they, they run past a wooden shack. And there are people outside that shack saying, come inside. Find rest, find security, come in here, you'll be safe. Now imagine that next door there is an actual tornado shelter. And there are people standing outside that shelter too. And they're saying similar things. They're saying, everybody, come in here, find safety and security in here. That's one of the things that they would want to be proclaiming. There's a second message that they're wanting to say, though. The people outside that tornado shelter, the one in the ground where you will be safe, they're going to be saying, don't go in that shack. The people saying that you'll, you'll be safe there, they're wrong. And we love you. We want you to be safe. Come in here. And that is what we confess when we are saying that there is no rock like our God. When Hannah is saying this, we are proclaiming on the one hand a message of hope. We are proclaiming a message of security that is drawing and inviting everybody. That is telling anyone that you can find security and shelter in this God. And that's no matter your ethnicity or your country of origin, your political party, your net worth. Even if you just say, I'm not, I've sinned greatly, last night even. The message that there is no rock like our God says, it does not matter. Your only hope, your only hope, friend, is in this God. And if you run to Him for shelter, 
If you lay no claim to yourself but say, God, I want, I want to be sheltered by you, he will take you in. The other message that we're wanting to say in love, in love, is that while you may think there are other places to turn to, none of them will suffice. And none of them will bring the protection that we long for. That is a proclamation that is immensely unpopular. Friends, we want to say that not because we like just to tell you that maybe you're wrong. We tell you that in love. There is no rock like our God. Second point of doctrine that Hannah brings up. God demonstrates his power through weakness. God demonstrates his power through weakness. Uh, you know, if, if I ever turn, uh, most movies I watch, which I don't watch a lot of movies these days, but, but if you turn it on, like one of the first things that happens is there's some engaging hook at the very beginning. There's an action scene where cars blow up and you say like, oh, if this is, if this is what the rest of the movie is going to be like, I'm going to, I'm here for it. Or, or if it's a drama, they want to tell the backstory of the main character so that you want to know how did he get to this place or how is this problem going to get solved? But as we said already, First Samuel begins not with like the brave and the mighty, not with an action sequence, but instead with the story of a barren woman married to an unknown guy in an out-of-the-way city. This is a story that in the scope of human history, we would look on this with the eyes of flesh and we would say, even of these characters, who cares? But God delights in using this kind of story because it is in this kind of story and in these kinds of people where God gets glory, where we see his power. And that's what Hannah proclaims in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 2 and her prayer there. God constantly is reversing the expectation of the outcomes that we expect to see. The strong weapons of the mighty, the bows of the, the most famous warriors, they lie shattered on the battlefield while those, those puny guys in the back, they're the ones who are mighty. The poor and the broken beggar sitting by the, the side of the road, he is now elevated to the side of the prince. The barren, it says, has borne children, while the one who felt exalted because she had so many children now has been humbled. These are the kind of underdog stories that we like to tell ourselves. This is like the 1980 Olympic hockey team from the U.S., a team of nobodies going against the four-time gold medal winning Soviet Union coming out on top. This is the rom-com that you watch where like the, the kind but maybe shy girl wins prom queen over the haughty popular crowd. Uh, kids, if you watch, or adults, if you watch the show Bluey, this is Bingo and Stripe who are the younger siblings beating Bandit and Bluey and Squash because big sisters don't always win. I think the reason that we love these kind of underdog stories is that we have all known and felt at some point, that we are weak. That we enjoy seeing the little guys win because we've been the little guy. But while many of those stories, many of the stories we see, they're trying to tell us, hey, the little guys are great. The Bible's painting just a slightly different picture. The Bible is telling these stories not just to say that the little guys are great, but that God, who lifts the little guys from their need, he is great and mighty. 
Elsewhere in the Bible, this is what Paul learned firsthand in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's, Paul starts talking all sorts of weird stuff at places. He says, I, I know this guy who was elevated, to, he got to see into the third heaven. He went and saw paradise. And he's talking, I think, there about himself. And just then, just when Paul says, you know, I'm, he might be positioned to brag about all of this amazing stuff that he has seen. How amazing it is. God is lucky to have me on his team. And then and he says this. In 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God, in his difficult providence in Paul's life, he sent a trial to keep Paul from the deadly disease of pride. And sometimes... Brothers and sisters, God sends a thorn. Sometimes God closes a wound so that in weakness these people will find shelter and strength in the God who upholds and sustains them. So, friends, in in your weakness, whatever that may be, and I know some of, I know my weakness, I know some of your weaknesses. You know, the ones that you struggle with, you wonder, is God ever going to do anything here? Your weakness, friend, is not a liability in the sight of God. The weakness that you feel that is there in your life, that is the context in which God himself can get maximal glory for working in your life. He demonstrates his power through weakness. Last point of doctrine, God will give strength to his king. Now, this seems like a real hard left turn. I got an inquisitive question from a church member about what is this? We we just talked about a story of a barren woman, an obscure man from an obscure city, a really mean sister wife, a mistaken priest, and a little baby. So what gives with how Hannah finishes this prayer? Look there at the end of verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What? Where's the king? Well, to answer that question, we're going to need to flip back a good ways to Genesis 17. This, the, the one you don't actually have to flip back there in your Bibles if you don't want to. I think this is on your note sheet. But in Genesis 17, verse 6, the Lord appears to Abraham and he kind of reconfirms some promises that he's already made. Okay, so God has already told Abraham amazing things he's going to do for him. He appears to Abraham, whose wife, Sarah, if you remember, is barren. So again, we should kind of have this ringing in our minds. And in Genesis seventeen six, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Things he's already promised. And then at the very end, this is something that's new in his promise. Kings shall come from you. And that little verse, that that becomes like a slender little thread of promise. 
A slender thread of promise woven into the tapestry of God's saving work. And from Genesis 17 up to here in 1 Samuel, that has continued as just like this slenderest of threads. So Genesis 17, 6, you see it. In Genesis 35, God makes the same kind of promise to Jacob, another man whose wife Rachel was barren for a season. And then Jacob talks about a scepter not passing from his son Judah. Then you skip several books. Kingship kind of doesn't show up all that much there. But then by in Deuteronomy 17, Moses makes some provisions and says, one day you may want a king and this is what he should be like. And then at the end of Judges, it starts to come back a little bit more prominently as we read earlier. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own sight. So this, this slender thread is strengthening, becoming brighter, maybe a little bit more prominent. And here, by faith, Hannah recognizes that in her story and in the birth of her son Samuel, it is bound up as part of God's great story and the promise of a king. She knows God is doing something to work about this small, slender thread. And that proves true, even in the birth of her son. In a few weeks, we're going to see not that Samuel becomes the king, but Samuel is the king maker. He's the one who will go on to anoint Saul, Israel's first king. And so maybe we read this and think Saul is the one. He's the one strengthened by God to be Israel's great king. But as we keep reading in 1 Samuel, Saul's kingship does not really go according to what they hope. And really, if you want to ask what's wrong with Saul's kingship, you can just go back and look at the previous two points of doctrine that we've talked about. Why Hannah brings these things up. Hannah says that in her story, she sees that God desires and is pleased to work in weakness. And Saul, throughout his kingship, he delights in his own strength. He refuses to be weak. And when things look dire, he he takes things into his own hands instead of relying upon the Lord. And so by the end of Saul's life, we find that instead of running to the rock, Yahweh, the Lord... He's more like beating his head against the Lord. Saul, the king, is thrown down ultimately because he does not find shelter in the rock and he doesn't find strength in weakness. There is a greater hope to come that we'll see in our story in the story of David. David, really the, the, hum, the humble shepherd king of Israel. And like Hannah, David will call upon the Lord of hosts. He'll stand before Goliath. And again, say, God, you're powerful. Oh, Lord of hosts, who's going to stand before this Philistine? I have you on my side. He trusts, like Hannah, that the Lord can use his weakness. And in the end, he he is the one who is, is exalted to the site of kingship. But the farther you trace that thread, the farther you go in David's kingship, you actually find the the thread start to fray a little bit once you get into some places in 2 Samuel. You'll see that he's not quite the king that we want either. He's better than Saul, but still a really mixed bag. But in God's kindness, the thread of kingship is not broken with David. In fact, God actually strengthens that thread in 2 Samuel 7, something we talked about again earlier this morning in core training. God makes there this amazing promise that one day he would raise up one of David's offspring and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That there would be coming a king who would rule with perfect justice and whose reign would have no end. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament... 
from that little promise in 2 Samuel 7, that great big promise in 2 Samuel 7, all the way to the end, you keep flipping page after page after page saying, is this the one? Did we finally find the guy? And the book of Kings is over and over and over a story of disappointment. King after king after king who does not do this. Until finally the Lord actually comes and visits another woman who can't conceive. But here he's visiting a woman not who is barren but a virgin. And the angel of the Lord comes to tell this obscure woman from an obscure place who on the scene of the world history would in the eyes of the world amount to no one that she's going to have a son. But she tells her that it's not just any son. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And this young girl, Mary, bursts out into a song that we sang some of earlier. And it sounds almost exactly like the second verse of Hannah's prayer. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And the rest of the New Testament bears out how this little thread of kingship is strengthened and shown fully and finally to be the promised one This little boy of Mary, King Jesus, the one whom all the hopes of Israel pointed to and where even this little story finds its fulfillment. And Jesus would be like the anti-Saul. If Saul is the one who glories in his own strength, Jesus has every right to do that. Saul may be taller and proud. He may have all these things. We are told that Jesus has all glory and authority And might and beauty and it is his by right. And yet, what does he do? But give those things up. And humble himself to take on flesh and become obedient. Even to the point of death on a cross. And in that very moment of weakness... What we would see as rock bottom, God demonstrates his absolute power in this king by raising him from the dead and giving him the name above every name that every knee will bow before him. And now we who know him, we who know this king that this is looked forward to, we proclaim with Hannah, there is no rock like our God. There is hope and security and peace found in Christ and in Him alone. He is the King whom God has strengthened and in whom we find our life. That is what the book of 1 Samuel is about. That's what the story of Hannah is pointing us towards. That is the one we are meant to worship. And as you think briefly, just What does this mean for my discipleship? How do I follow this Lord, this King? I just have one simple application, one call. Seek the Lord Jesus, your King. 
And for all who believe in him, who have trusted in this king as your only hope in life and death, we must run to him and cling to him. Brothers and sisters, as, as Hannah could have gone so many other places, the temptation comes for us to turn to so many other things. I feel it in my own life to run to other things first. When God, with all of his riches, the Lord of hosts, stands ready and calling and inviting for you, brother and sister, to come to him, to seek and find security in him before we look anywhere else. Look to Christ, our great King. And then for, for you here this morning, if you're here with us this morning and you do not trust in Christ, you know of yourself that you don't trust in Christ, we're glad you're here. Whether you came just to check out a church to find friends, we are, we're glad that you're among us. But we want to tell you in love and in kindness that wherever you turn for trust and peace, Wherever you may find comfort in the midst of life's storms and your great need, the story that we want to tell you is a better story of true hope, but it is found only in this king. You will not find it in your job or in physical health or in a big family or in having all the money that you need. The only hope in your weakness is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to you, friend, he opens his arms widely and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest and peace. I am the rock who will not disappoint and who by no means will cast out. Will you seek and find refuge in this king today? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you in your mercy that you look upon humble women and men and you and your kindness answer that you are our rock and our deliverer. And we thank you that your son Christ is the one whom we find our strength in. And so as we as brothers and sisters in this room, those who may today feel themselves weak and humbled, and that there is nowhere else to turn, would you help us to know that in your mercy, your King holds us, and that in Him we find security and hope and an inheritance forever. We pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.